Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast podcast. Today's episode is about as special as it gets, an interview with Caleb Quay, without whom there will be no Elton John. Caleb agreed to talk to me to promote the crowdfunding campaign that he's got going on for his film Louder Than Rock, which is finished but he needs support to help him to clear some video clips for use in the film and for promotional purposes and things like that. You can still donate to his campaign. It's not too late. It's up and running still. The link is in the episode description. Time to get into the interview then. I'm starting off by telling Caleb how much he's already featured in the podcast and how nervous I am about talking to him. I've done an episode about the recordings that you did back in 67 and 68 with Elton and I've done stuff about I've been loving you and I love that era and there's so many questions that I would love to ask you whether or not I'll manage to get them all out it will take forever so I'll try and be succinct okay Um, you're a big hero of mine so I'm a bit scared Well, bless your heart, Neil. I promise you, I don't bite. No, you don't seem frightening, which makes me being scared all the more unreasonable. But I'm a bit <laughs> scared. Um, all right, then. Today's episode is an extremely special one. It's a chance for me to talk to one of my all-time heroes, Caleb Quay. Caleb needs no introduction whatsoever to the Elton John fan, but I'm going to do it anyway. He was Elton's first real musical contemporary. He met him back in 1965 in Soho and they talked and they dreamed together. And eventually they wrote and they recorded together. Lots of false starts, quite a lot of juvenilia. Juvenilia? How do you say that word? But some (laughs) fantastic material back then leading up to Empty Sky, which happens to be in my top three Elton John albums. He recorded the Elton John album, Tumbleweed Connection, Friends, Mad Man Across the Water, all of the BBC sessions. And of course, mm. he came back to be part of the touring band for Rock of the Westies and Blue Moves. Eric Clapton called him the best guitarist in the world. And so, as you'd expect, he's worked with some of the best musicians in the world. The Beatles, kinda. The Hollies, Jerry and the Pacemakers. The Trogs, would you call the Trogs the best musicians in the world, Caleb? No, no way. Um, Harry Nielsen, uh, there's so many stories there. Lou Reed, Pete Townsend, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah. Um, Hall and Oates, of course, Dusty Springfield, Joan Byers, and many, many more. And all of this without mentioning Hookfoot, um, his songwriting, and his work as a pastor now is my great pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Caleb Quay. Welcome, Caleb. Thank you, Neil. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Well, you know, it's nothing. <laughs> Thank you for the amazing music and everything you've done. What about that Eric Clapton quote? I, I've tried to find it. I thought it'd be a great way to start the show. I haven't been able to find a recording of it, but it definitely happened, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It blew me away. I was actually contacted by CBS News because he had said it apparently on um, a David Letterman uh, show. Yeah. When he was 
an interview, David Letterman asked him the question. And then somehow CBS, a CBS affiliate news station up in um, uh, the Portland, Oregon area, tracked me down, which is kind of scary. Yeah. And uh, phoned me up at a, at a fellow pastor's house. And uh, they wanted to send a, which they did, sent a news crew, a local news crew over to interview me. So it was all very surreal. You know, I pick up the phone and this woman says, uh, am I speaking to the world's greatest guitarist? I said, excuse me, who is this? What is? She said, this is CBS News. And Eric Clapton has just said, you know, and she said the quote, you know, and I was just floored, absolutely floored. You Had know. you worked with Eric Clapton before? Yeah, a little bit, and uh, we worked on on the Tommy album, the the the, the soundtrack to the Tommy movie. Mm. And also, I knew him. I'd met him first. Met him uh, in oh, I'm going to say 1967, when he was with Cream. Oh yeah, because they su they supported you with Bluesology, didn't they? Yeah, we, we you know we co-headlined some shows, mm. you know. Um, touring around England and so that's when we met and we kind of had this mutual admiration society thing going on backstage you know yeah. so we'd watch each other's sets you know and then they comment oh I really like the way you played that man and oh yeah great blah 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 and, uh, and so that's kind of where it started you know so years later you know this was around 2000 I believe um, when he made that comment on the David Letterman show I was just honoured and floored at the same time, you know. Yeah, it must have been quite something. And that wasn't so long after you turned your life around, was it? When did things change for you? Oh, 1982. Oh, right. Okay, so it was quite a long time. Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been a mm -hmm. while. Um, you came from a, a really musical house. Um, your dad's obviously on record as being a musician. You've got an older sister that's a piano player, haven't you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's also She's a, a pastor. Do you yeah. remember, you played the piano from the age of about four, but do you remember the first well, time you thought, that guitar is what I want to be doing? Well, you know, it was a, it was a progression, really. Um, first, I, I was fascinated with the guitar just by sitting down watching my dad play the guitar as well, because he was a multi-instrumentalist. Piano was his main instrument, but he was also a drummer. And he was also a guitar player as well. Yes. So I used to, as a little kid, just watching him, you know, practice songs and stuff on the guitar. And I was always fascinated with the sound of the guitar. And then my dad was bringing home records. And back in those days, you know, American imports and stuff like that of the American jazz guitar players, you know, guys like Barney Kessel and, and Wes Montgomery and and he would say, hey, listen, listen to this, you know. And so the, just this sound of the guitar just caught my ear very strongly when I was a young kid. And then when I was um, 12 years old is when I started, when I got my first guitar and uh, started to learn the guitar with a couple of guys at school. And uh, very soon after, not long after that, about 13, 14 years old, I formed a band, I had a band at my school. You know, and by that time I was hooked. Do you remember what they were called? Uh, yeah, they were called the Soundcasters. Oh, that's a great name. Good name. That yeah, wasn't we, with that wasn't with Chris Squire, was it? No, Chris Squire. I knew um, same time period. Mm. Uh, Chris Squire and I used to sing in in the church choir. 
Yes. In, fin in Finchley, where I grew up. So I knew Chris from about 12 years old. Um, we were we were fellow choir boys in St. Mary's Church in Finchley. And you also knew Steve Ellis, didn't you? Although he was a lot younger than you. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. He was. He's, he's, he released an album just a couple of months ago. I don't know if you know that, but he, he's released an album that was produced by Paul Weller, in, at least part of oh. it, and lots of instrument instruments on there from Paul. And uh, he's mentioned you recently in an interview, and he said that he was often badgering you to join a band. But I think maybe he was he was a bit too young for you at that stage. <laughs> yeah, that's I'm amazed that he's. Wow, that's amazing he mentioned me after all these years. <laughs> yeah, but Steve was a good lad, and, and uh, I remember doing a gig with with the the Love Affair, I think was the name of his group at the yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, what was it? Uh, early 70s, I think. I think you, because you recorded about six or so tracks with Hookfoot with them, with him. That's rather. right, that's right. And we backed him at a show at the... What was it? The Empire Pool, I think it was. Was it the Enemy Pool Winners Party or something like that? Yeah, one of those. Yeah, one of those kind of shows. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So that that material got released again fairly recently. So it's out there yeah. now. So the stuff that never it didn't come out at the time, did it? I don't think so. No. But no. it is. A, have you heard it? Have you heard it recently? Oh no. I've got I've got no, a I copy. Haven't. If you'd like to hear it, I'll send it to you. Please do. That'd be great. That'd be great. <laughs> I'm going to cut in here to introduce one of those unreleased Steve Ellis tracks. Steve was in a band called Love Affair. Their enormous hit was the song Everlasting Love. This is a few years after that, in 1971, I think, when he'd left the band to their own devices and he was doing his own thing, primarily with Hookfoot backing him. Caleb played on one or two singles that Steve recorded back then, and they also put together a whole album, which only fairly recently saw the light of day on Steve Ellis's compilation, Time Hasn't Changed Us. This song is called Way Up on a Hill. It's a Caleb Steve Ellis co-write, and there'll be another surprise from these sessions at the end of the episode.
there's another thing. While we're talking about stuff that you recorded with Hookfoot, so skipping out everything for a while, but that, um, you recorded a couple of songs with P.P. Arnold, didn't you? Um, about 69 or 1970. And that was a, like an all-star album. Clapton was on there as well, although I don't think you would have worked with him. That came out just a few months ago as well. And it's I've That's listened right. to it. It yeah. sounds amazing. And you wrote those songs, Thank didn't you? I did. I co-wrote them with, with her. We were great friends back then. And uh, yeah, I, I, she sent me a copy. I've been in touch with her recently. Oh, and, right. Okay. Uh, told me all about it and I have a copy yeah and I'm amazed at how good it sounds after all these years what yeah earth didn't that come out at the time it was to do with um, contractual um, situations that you know she was involved with at the time so what a shame music business stuff yeah I'm sorry I'm not going to keep jumping in like this explaining every track that I'm going to play but it's worth naming this one in case anyone wants to go out and buy it it's a wonderful thing this is P.P. Arnold's 1971 album, The Turning Tide, which Steve Craddock from Ocean Colour Scene brought out on his own label last year, after more than 45 years in contractual no-man's land. This is one of two songs that Caleb wrote with P.P. Arnold for that album, Children of the Last War. a musical distributor wasn't it for sheet music that was your first job out of school That's right. yep. and you were just like reg i don't normally call him reg but i'm gonna do it for you just like reg you were surrounded yep. by those real tin pan alley old guard weren't you oh yeah absolutely yeah mm -hmm. it was that era you had your you had criminals strippers promoters publishers yep. musicians yep. Absolutely. Filmmakers yep. and all the punters just sort of rolling around together, everything That's within right. touching distance. It sounds like a yep. really fun time. It was. It was. It, it was. I mean, it was exciting. I mean, I was. You know, it was. It was crazy. But it, it was exciting. You, you used to trek along to Mills, and Reg used to come along to you at Paxton's, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I was reading some other people's recollection of working at Paxton's because there's a couple of people that have talked about it working in that era there. One of these recollections was by, by a guy called Johnny Concharu, or, or that was his online name, I don't know. Um, and he says he worked with you for about two months 
So just before you left to work at DJM, he worked with you for a couple of months. And he remembers Reg and you in the tea room, which was downstairs, pretty much every lunchtime, dreaming and uh, scheming together. Yeah, yeah. What was it? What, what was what was the plan? Because it all disappeared as soon as you went to DJM. You didn't see him for so long. Yeah, back then. I mean, I mean, in those in that particular time period. I mean, there was no like grand scheme. Yeah. What happened was we we bonded together over, I guess, the love of the same music. Mm. We found out that we we liked the same music. So what we used to do was. At the end of uh, of our workday, we would go to the record stores. Yeah. And back then, you, you had the listening booths. You could go and, and listen. So we'd spend all our time listening to records and buying records. Most of your salary went on records then. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Cups of tea and records, fish and <laughs> chips and records. <laughs> and it was an exciting time. You know, it was it was great. Yeah. You were you used to tease Reg. A bit. Oh yeah, he's quite. He was funny. Did he, he take it guy. well? I mean, I imagine he was someone that would take take being teased fairly well. He did. I mean, there was nothing malicious about it, no. and um, he had a great sense of humour. He's a funny man. We both we both enjoyed the same comedians mm-hmm. of the of the of that era, you know. So there was a lot of um, yeah, a lot of similarities in terms of things that we like, both music and humour. We became friends through that. You didn't see him when you got your job at DJ at Dick James with Dick James. Right. You didn't see him for a while, did you? Right, because he had he had uh, formed Bluesology, so he left Mills Music and he formed the Bluesology. Yeah, he was on the road, wasn't he? So you you wouldn't right. see much of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got that job because was it? You've said that the hiring manager knew that you were the son of Cab K. And that helped well, you get James. in. Yeah, it was the oh sure, yeah, Dick himself knew that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was life like at Dick James? It was loads of excitement at that time. You had Rubber Soul, Help, Revolver, Very. all of that going on. It must have been mad. I joined Dick James in 1965, in between um, Hard Day's Night mm-hmm. and then the Help movie. So when I joined, they were getting ready to I mean, the help um, movie was being produced and they were getting ready to uh, release that and the music for that and everything. So it was a very, very exciting time because you're working here with the Beatles Music Publishing Company. The Beatles were like the gods of the earth at the time. Yeah. And uh, it was, and everybody was banging on that door to get their songs published. It was a very exciting time. Uh, so that was 65. The next, in the following year, 66, uh, Andrew Oldham moved into the building right next door to start Immediate Records, which was the first independent record label in England at the time. So that was, he bought the Stones in there, the Small Faces, P.P. Arnold, that's where I met her. Okay. So it was uh, radically I can't describe how exciting it was you know every day was just it was great I was learning my craft that's the one thing I'll always be thankful for Dick James music for was it was a, just a tremendous opportunity to learn my craft as a, as a musician and a songwriter producer studio engineer all of that stuff that is a lot of things to be learning at one time and you were 
17 years old, younger, 17? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I became, uh, I joined when I was 16, I think 15, 16, and then um, became, you know, an A&R guy at 17 years old. Listening to these tapes that were being brought in. Oh, yeah, yeah, Having to make decisions as to who, who was, you know, worthy of, you know, being auditioned and who was not. <laughs> did you pick up, did, were you responsible for any decent acts then at that time? Did you, did you find anyone? Elton John. <laughs> so the way it worked was um, you were there in the studio. Uh, Stephen James was nominally the studio manager, wasn't he, at first, but he got moved to the upstairs offices after a while. Right, and handed it over to me, yeah, yeah. So when, when Reg came over to do his audition tapes, he had to audition for me. <laughs> and you weren't hugely impressed, at least with the, uh, the songs. Yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah, yeah. His piano playing was fine, you know, singing was fine, but the the, the lyrics were weak in the songs. Was it stuff that, that he's decision. been writing with Nicky James? Well, the very first, the first stuff was stuff that he'd written on his own. Okay. Nicky James and Kirk had not come into the picture yet. Um, not that I remember. It was stuff that he was doing on his own, and so it's um, very soon after he'd met Ray, then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ray Williams brought him around. Can you tell me a bit about the studio? I've got some pictures of the studio, which I'll dig out and send to you in a bit. Was it a two-track desk in there when you first started, or was it four? Because I've seen both mentioned. Yeah, we had both. We had both. Um, it started out two, then quickly went to four, um, and then later on went to eight-track yeah, and 16-track. in there, wasn't there? There's a picture yeah. of Stephen at the Ampex, isn't there? Yeah. Um, you recorded... Um, November 66, the Beatles Christmas record, Pantomime, Everywhere It's Christmas. Can you recall any of yeah. that? You can't, surely. Man, you have done your homework. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. Yes, I did do that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you remember it? Do you remember it? Um, it was a, a little bit. I mean, I remember the event. It was surreal, you know, because it was uh, a late night session, you know, it was after hours and they came over with George Martin. So I'm this teenager sitting at the, at the mixing desk next to George Martin and, and um, Jeff Emmerich, yeah. who was who was the new engineer at the time. Uh, Brian Epstein was there. And then the Beatles walked in in all of their Afghan coats and psychedelic paraphernalia and it was like the four gods of the earth walked in and I'm going oh my god what in the world you know and they had nothing it, it, it well it wasn't a music session you know so they were goofing off and they were playing some so, records weren't they I think there's some some bits some moments of other recordings being used probably not very well licensed yeah which I think maybe Jeff may have inserted that later on okay I don't know but um, so it was very spontaneous. I'm standing there with a microphone going, well, where do you want me to put them? <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's on next, you know? Uh, so it was uh, all very odd. But it, 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 was, it was fun, though. Yeah, it sounds it amazing. In the long, dark corridors of Felpin Mansions, a door slams. And the shadowy figure of Count Balder appears. The Count is the eccentric son of Baron Landsberg, the inventor of the rack. He speaks. 
Guten Tag, meine Damen und Herren. Welcome to Felpin Mansions. But let us show you to your rooms. But what? Yes, sir. Tell the ladies and gentlemen to their rooms. Yes, sir. Come this way, please. Come in. May I come in? Come, come in, Count. May I? Oh, yes, come in. Ah, oh, thank you. I was wondering if you knew any of the songs from the good old days. Oh, my goodness. Yes, don't you worry on that score. Uh, I hear the Baron likes, uh, I hear the Baron likes the good old tune. Yes, I do. So do I, Count. So do I. Well, they're all melody, aren't they? No, don't you worry, I'll play him this one. He liked this one. Is it, listen to this one. Please don't bring your banjo back. I know where it's been. I wasn't hardly gone a day when it became the scene. And you also recorded a couple of other demos with Paul and his brother. Was that Mike? Right. Mike, yeah, Mike McGee, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Elton actually, later on, when uh, when the scaffold did Gingangooli, Elton's down as being in that session. Are you in that session as well? I wasn't in that one, no. Okay. No. There's loads of amazing, not just this unreleased material, there's quite a lot of brilliant released material that came out, obviously. The, the most famous of which, and the most valuable of which, is uh, Baby, Your Phrasing is Bad. <laughs> Bavistock. Is it Jack Bavistock at Phillips? Do you think he actually yeah. listened to that and said, yes, that's what I want to release. That's that's what I'm that's what I want. It's a good question. I'm not sure that Jack was, you know, may have said that, but it was it was produced at Dick James Studios. Oh. And Dick, Dick had a um, when he first started to like branch out into record production, he had a company called This Records. Mm. With, and he had a distribution deal through Philips. So that's how it came out on the Philips label, is via the distribution deal. As to whether Jack Bavistock was actually excited about that particular record, I couldn't tell you. I, I somehow don't think so. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure if his, if his family have got any lying around, they'd be happy now because they're going for up to $3,000 on Discogs. You're kidding me. Nope. What? Yep. A lot of things that have got your name on are going for fairly silly money on Discogs. Really? Have you got one? Do you have one? No, I don't. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> all I have, all I have of that record is a cassette tape. Um, it, it's got D on it, hasn't it? D Murray plays. 
D. Murray and uh, the drummer was Dave Hines. Yes, and at so the time they were both members of a group called the Mirage. But no, no Elton, no Reg, as far as you remember. Just three piece. Yeah, it's just a three piece. Just a three yeah, piece. me on guitar, D and Dave on drums. Yeah, it's a wild sound. You 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 got the phasing, I guess, by putting your finger on the tape. Was it as simple as that? Yeah. Old school phasing, two tape machines, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So there, another thing that came out around about that time was a song you wrote called Cause I'm Lonely, um, which I actually played on the episode about Elton's debut single. Um, it's a, it's completely different, uh, this phrasing song. It sounds like a Jimmy Webb song, almost. It just shows your range, though. And then there's uh, uh, the song Silver Butterfly as well, which is a much more straightforward psychedelic song for Nicky James. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. So you were writing with Nicky, and Elton was writing with Nicky simultaneously at, at that time. Yeah. There was a lot of um, collaborative activity going on at Dick James at that time. That was the thing. When I went back through the Phillips back catalogue, and trying to draw out the Elton John connections, they were everywhere. It was just completely yeah, oh yeah. incredibly rich, the connections. Yeah, a lot of collaboration back then. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Your dad was having played some guitar for the Trogs. I, we, I joked about the Trogs yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. Um, is that your fuzz tone on I Can Only Give You Everything? Is that you? Oh, gosh, I'd have to listen to that. I can't even remember the title of it. It could be. It, you definitely are down as having played on Love Is All Around, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to spend my life with a girl like you. I don't know that one. I yeah, know that Wild was the thing. I don't. My truck's knowledge is quite poor. You're not on Wild Thing, are you? A little bit, tucked away back there. Are you really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Their producer Larry Page brought me in because he was part of the Dick James. Uh, it was under the Dick James umbrella, and he brought me in, which a lot of people did back then because um, sometimes bands were, uh, they could do their thing live, but when you get it into a studio, yeah. and especially like back in the analog days, it's like everything gets put under the microscope, and some of these guys just didn't have studio discipline and couldn't get the sound, you know, a recordable sound, so they bring in a session player, mm -hmm. like myself or Jimmy Page used to do a lot of that as well. Yes. You know? So you probably didn't play an awful lot with Jimmy because it was Caleb or Jimmy. Yeah, well, actually, I took his place in the studios when he'd had a meltdown and decided he didn't want to do it anymore. Oh. That was in 1966. And I did a session for his contractor, and his contractor liked what I was doing, and he asked me, I've got all this work lined up for Jimmy, and he doesn't want to do it anymore. Would you, would you want to do it? I said, oh, yes, please, yeah, yeah. Oh, I wish you'd kept, you didn't keep any written notes of what you ended up on, because it's all lost to the mists of time, isn't it? Same with Jimmy's, yeah. Jimmy's work. No one knows really what he is or isn't on. I know. You know, it's amazing. He's a lot, he's on a lot of um, Herman's Hermits records. Is he? <laughs> I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, and John Paul Jones. He was a hot ses studio guy at the time. And a ranger later on as well. Well, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they were both yeah. proper musicians, weren't they? Did you ever put pen to paper for notation? Did you ever write, write arrangements? A little bit.
close up if he can As I survey the floorboards with his soldiers around him But fear not for the future You will climb the highest mountain So rest him at the start and sit recordings that you did with Reg they seem to come together very quickly from sort of September 67 and they start to get registered and maybe the last ones of that batch are in about June 
of 68. Some of them are just piano okay. and a bit of tambourine, but some of them you went all in. You really yeah. did go all in. Can you yeah. tell us about how you decided what went where musically, you know, when to get the harpsichord in, when to get the string <laughs> section in? Uh, I mean, I can't believe the audacity of what you were doing, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But, um, and also, who arranged them? Did, did Zach Lawrence do any of the arrangements? Some of the strings, if we use strings, Zach, yeah, I think most of the time would have been Zach Lawrence. Um, but um, I think uh, to answer that question best, I think it's the result of a musical chemistry that had developed. Mm that was based on liking the same music. So it goes back to all the different records that we were listening to. They became part of the dream of whatever song was being written. So he would say something like, oh, I want it to sound like this, which could be Beach Boys, or it could be Motown, or it could be Memphis, or whatever. Yeah. And immediately you say that, both of us know exactly what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So I want guitar parts like Steve Cropper, or I want guitar parts like the Motown guys. So it, it's it's kind of like we were budding musicologists at the time. Yeah. Which I think, which, which most people are, most successful musicians are, they're musicologists, you know. Um, everything is borrowed. Yeah, you know, very magpie. Plagiarism. Like. Yeah, plagiarism is a good thing. Everything's borrowed, you know. Uh, everything is and influences are assimilated, and then out of that comes a signature sound mm -hmm. or, or structure of a song. And so that influences. That's where the arrangements come come from. Oh, we need something like whatever. It and some of those songs have got an enormous sound. They are huge. Like mm -hmm. some of the songs that haven't been bootlegged widely. Are some of the biggest ones as well like Nina sounds I've heard a little snippet of Nina and it's very messy what we can hear but it's enormous yeah it's there's yeah. a lot in, yeah. you, you threw a lot into that and this is the absolute irony of the situation that you are booking this here's another yeah. practical question yeah. these musicians that were coming in the string string section I mean surely some of them you were doing them during the day because you can't afford to get musicians out of hours, like musician union rules. Right, right, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they, yeah, we pay them union rates and everything, you know. And um, and also, at the time, at that time, so you're talking about, you know, mid to late 60s, the Beatles were just blowing the walls off of what was happening in music. Yeah. In terms of not only not only their their, their songs and the and the performance of the songs, but the production of the songs, the sound, they were you know, they were just uh, how can I say revolutionising pop music as we'd understood it. So we were very influenced by that. You know, um, I knew engineers at EMI, and I'm talking to them and asking questions and. Mm -hmm going over to there to see how they're doing things, learning stuff about mic placement. It, it, so it, it was a radical time. You got to listen to Sgt. Pepper before it came out because you had to send it off to the copyists, didn't you? Yep. And uh, right. I was right. talking to Stuart Epps fairly recently, and he recalls everyone sat around 
around about this time 50 years ago because it's 50 years now listening yeah. to the white album for the first time and everyone just somewhat yeah. taken aback yeah well i used to get to listen to beatles things when they were half finished did you oh yeah oh yeah yeah you're, you're... because we had to yeah and everything was done by hand there was no notation software no you know I mean, it was, you know, it was a slow process, so everything had to be thought about, you know, months in, you know, months in advance. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I used to have to cut uh, uh, vinyl acetates and then run them over to the copyist in Denmark Street, who was this guy in a basement office, Jeff Muston was his name, and, I mean, he would sit in this dingy office with the little light bulb hanging from the ceiling with the cap over his head, scribbling away, handwriting these, these charts. And he was a guy, you'll love this story, he was a guy that was, he was old back then. He was in his, I don't know, 60s or something back then. Yeah. So his idea of music was big band stuff. He had no clue about guitar chords. So he would always ask me, what is this chord? You know, I'd go, oh, well, that's a, a G7, you know, whatever it was, you know. Oh, it doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound anything like what, you know. And, and so I didn't tell him the chords for the music, for the beaten sheet music. You should have got some extra money for that. Oh, that, that oh boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. <laughs> it was, but I loved it. It was, it was an amazing, it was an exciting time, you know, as all because it, 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 there was so much brand new stuff going on in this what was then still an analog world yeah um, you, there was not you weren't just recording with reg were you you've mentioned that you were recording the what roy brothers oh yeah 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 the, their band was the living daylights wasn't it that's right yeah yeah, yeah. That, so actually, one single came out from that as well so they did they did yeah. a bit better than elton because although having said that there's an EP, the Portuguese EP does have Angel Tree on it and Turn To Me, I think. To Me, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So some of them did make it onto, onto Wax eventually. Uh-huh. Uh Wouldn't it be nice wow. to hear those recordings in decent fidelity? Yeah, it would, yeah. What was your process with the tape? With it? Did you reuse the four-track tape um, after making a mix or did you store the tape as well? Well, the tape; those tapes would have been stored because they were they were for the publishing company. So they were um, those songs were offered to you know other artists mm. because Reg and Bernie were signed as staff songwriters. But there was a moment when the three of you were going to be marketed as a songwriting team. You posted some pictures right. recently, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Was that Dick's idea? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure whose idea that was. That's a very good question. And I'm honestly not sure it could have been. I don't, but no, I don't think it was Dick's idea, but he allowed it. Did he? But, yeah, but I'm not sure whose idea it was. And this is after the, the purge. Yeah, yeah, it sounds yeah. like it was a scary time for you because you were fighting for your career a little bit there at the age of 17 or 18. Yeah, yeah, I put my job on the line for them. Yeah, you yeah. did. I bet he appreciated yeah. it. I hope he appreciated it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Dick actually heard something in these songs. He, he he sat there and he listened to dozens oh, of them. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. The man had a lot of patience. What do you remember of Dick? How do you remember him? You know, it, it's interesting. I mean, I always liked him. Um, he was like a father figure kind of a guy. Mm-hmm. Of course, he's from my dad's generation, you know. Um, but, you know, he... Um, you know, and I've heard all kinds of reports, and I know, you know, Elton got upset with him over royalties and this, that, and the other, which I, I understand, but I have to say, looking back, I love the man because even though we didn't, we had our disagreements over uh, styles of music, yes. you know, he was always coming at us, it needs to be commercial. It's like, okay, what is that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> So he was old school music business, you know, in 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 that sense, you know. But um, but you know what? He had a big heart, and he mm. gave us an opportunity to learn our craft that most probably few people would. It wouldn't have happened without the Beatles, though, would it? I think he would have been in a slightly different oh, headspace. If oh, it were. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, no question about it. That was, I mean, you know, George Martin handed him, you know. And, of course, nobody knew it at the time. Even George Martin didn't even know. You yeah. know. I mean, they were looking for a publishing company, so I know this guy, try him. You know, everything everything was a ground zero. You know, nobody knew how big the Beatles were going to be. No. You know. I'm sure it was a great uh, surprise for Dick, though, at the end of, towards the end of his career, oh, to have that. And then oh, to have Elton. Yeah, yeah, gets the Queen's Award for industry and all this kind of stuff, you know. Before that purge, though, you were you were hiring in harpsichords. I still find the image of that absolutely hilarious. Oh, yeah. It's just so oh, yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was an amazing time. It's a time I'll never forget, and a time that I'll never regret either. No, you called the studio the gaff because you basically the lived gaff, there. Yeah, let's go up to the gaff. Yeah, <laughs> it was great. And, you know, it was so exciting because we could not wait to get in the studio. When we started, you know, when I started recording with, with, after Reg and Bernie got signed, you know, and uh, we could not wait to get in the studio. Mm. You know, so, you know, Reg would call me up, you know, Bernie sent some lyrics. I've got, got three songs or whatever. Okay, book time. Okay, here we go. We're in. You know, we couldn't wait to get in the studio and work on this stuff. It was just kids in a candy store. It was wonderful. Well, I, I, this is a bit of a, a tough question because it's a real memory one. But do, do you, what's your favourite song that you did back in that era, pre-Empty Sky? There is one song, and for some reason it never made it onto what was later called the Dick James demos. There was like some CDs that were put out. And it was a song called Watching the Planes Go By. Yeah. I, I don't have it. There, I've, got a, I've got a sample of it. Oh, okay. Oh, my God. 
ago an acetate turned up on ebay for fifteen thousand pounds um what yeah and it purported to be the um scrapped debut album which was called and it's written down there as the regimental sergeant zippo 12 track album um, okay which started with teal b abbey and closed yeah. with watching the planes um, okay. And had Zippo as the last track on side one. And then I think it had Tartan Colored Lady as the first track on side two. So it, when you looked at the track listing, you thought, well, that's reasonable. You know, it makes sense. How the man yeah. got hold of it, I don't know. But do you remember something really being brought together and presented in that way? I do. I do. We, we were planning on putting an album out. But for whatever reason, it it it, it got shelved. Um, I think because Dick most probably thought it wasn't commercial. Mm. It didn't sound like Tom Jones or Engelbert Humperdinck, which he used to keep on it. As a... <laughs> and then, yeah. So then, you. This is when you started to lose a little bit yeah. of interest, isn't it? Because you were being pushed yeah, yeah. in directions you didn't want to go. Do you remember the sessions? I think it was around about the time Steve Brown started. Yeah. For the song Smokestack Children. Do you remember that song? Oh. I think it had the Mirage backing it. I remember the title, but I... Can I send you a picture of a tape box? Oh, sure. I've just sent it, so it should pop up in a minute. Wow. Do you, does that, that's not your writing, is it? You know, I think it is. <laughs> is it really? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So Unbelievable. three songs there. The thing that really strikes me about this recording is the date of it. Um, I've never heard the song. I've heard a snippet again of The Girl on Angel Pavement, which is a brilliant Bernie title, isn't it? What an, what an amazing title that is. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh -huh. it sounds like a real commercial number. Um, uh -huh. Very jaunty, very... Carnegie Street type song. I don't know what I mean by that. Okay. But but it just chunters along. But the timing is weird because yeah. it's September and Steve Brown joined in September. So it must have been like there was a bit of an overlap here. Steve's here saying, no, Leonard Cohen, Leonard Cohen. And then yeah. this stuff is still being recorded. And you were involved. 
September 68, there, there must have been an overlap because the 68, you know, in shortly after that, I left. Yeah. I left in 68 and we, we started you, Hookfoot. You were there. putting Hookfoot together. Where did you meet uh, Dave and Roger? Oh, um, well, gosh, I first met Roger back in 66 at Ready Steady Go Studios when he was back in Buddy Guy. Oh, was he? All right, Buddy yeah, Guy was, yeah, he was an American guy, American musician, wasn't he, coming yeah. over? American blues guitar player, yeah. American blues guitar player, um, forerunner of Jimi Hendrix, mm -hmm. and came over over to to the UK and Roger was playing in a band called the Soul Agents a very, very excellent you know blues oh. band all based blues band and him and Dave Glover were in that band and uh, that's where I first met Roger was at that at those at that studio and then later on <clears throat> a few months later the Soul Agents came up to audition at Dick James music oh okay Everyone came yeah. through Dick James in the end, didn't oh, they? Oh, I'm telling you, man, um, that was crazy. It was unbelievable. Everybody was banging on that door. You came back in. I guess you were called back in by Elton when he had something interesting going on around Empty Sky. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. It said that you've said that... Actually, before... Uh, let me think now. Before Empty Sky... Because uh, Steve produced um, some singles for him, yeah. uh, Lady Samantha. Yes, with uh, All Across the Havens on the B-side, which mm. I love. It's one of my favourite Elton songs because it's so folky. His voice is so clean and so thin. Yeah. I love yeah. the way he sounds on yeah. that. <laughs> to open for him at the Marquee in about spring, probably, of 68. Yeah, right, right, right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, here's the impossible question. What did you play? 
Oh, man. Did you play? Here's one. Did you play Sitting Doing Nothing? I honestly don't know. We could have done... We most, yeah, boy, it's a, it's a good question. We did, obviously, some of the material that had been recorded at Dick James. Yeah. Some of the more um, up-tempo-y stuff. Yes. Uh, and I can't, but as to what tunes, I honestly cannot remember. You must have done Zippo, surely. We may have done, yeah, I'm, well, I'm sure we did that. Um, gosh. I mean, I can't remember what I had for breakfast two days ago, so I have no expectations <laughs> for you remembering yeah. uh, what would have been That's probably the, not the, a very the, memorable gig. It probably because Elton was, you know, quite a reserved performer at that time, wasn't he? Yeah, but you know what? I do remember when we did that gig; it, we went over very, very well. Did you? Oh yeah. It's a shame you yeah. didn't follow it up with many more, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it was all. And if I remember rightly, I think um, when we did that gig at the Marquee, I think we had made, maybe Reg and I had just left Bluesology. Mm. It was like at the tail end, tail end of our time with Bluesology. Um, but I uh, think we had a tight little band with using... Uh, D. Murray and Dave Hines. It was all very tight. and But I honestly cannot remember what songs we did. Right, I've given you a stumper there. I didn't expect you to remember. No. Um, you can that's listen to the material and you can think, well, that's a playable tune. I'd have a crack at that. And then you'd listen to something else and yeah. think, no, I'm not going to... I can't imagine <laughs> you did Tartan Coloured Lady that day or uh, yeah. anything like that. Okay. And it, it wouldn't have been a long set. We would may have played like, I don't know, 30 minutes or something, okay. you know, it wouldn't have been long set. But, but the other delicious thing that you've said is that in preparation for Empty Sky, in preparation for Elton John and for Tumbleweed, for that matter, Elton mm -hmm. played on stage with Hookfoot or got on stage or worked the songs up with the rhythm section and with you. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. How did that actually happen? What happened? Was that during an actual gig or was it during a sound check? Oh no! There was sometimes it, it was an actual actual gig. You know, we'd have our hook for gig somewhere. <clears throat> I remember we did one at the um, London School of Economics. Yes, they used to do concerts. You know, and so we played. Hookfoot was booked there, and uh, you know, I remember introducing a friend of ours, Reg Dwight. It's going to come play piano, and, and we're going to do a few of his songs. You know. Yeah. And went over great. You know. It, it was it was great. We were friends, you know. We were friends. He didn't have a band. I had a band, um, and he was still working out his material. And so, yeah, that was that was it. It's funny that on Empty Sky, it, there's no Dave Glover. It's Tony Murray. Where was Dave? Yeah, I'm not sure. I honestly can't think of why he was not on it. Um, but they booked Tony. Tony Murray was booked instead. Now Tony was part of another band that was signed to was under the Dick James umbrella, um, and also he. Let me think here. Um, I forget the name of the first band, but later on Tony switched and became the bass player for the Trogs. Yeah. 
and he he became the most musical guy in the Trogs. And um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I can't think why. Oh, Plastic Penny, that's the first band he was with. Band oh, so Plastic he was with Penny. Nigel over there. With Nigel, yes, yeah, yeah. And then he went and joined the Trogs, that's it. Do you have any memories of those sessions? I think it was, you've, you said it was like a week or so in January recording Empty Sky. Oh, the Empty Sky? 69. Yeah, it didn't take long, went very smooth. It, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Steve sounds yeah. like a nice guy to work with. Oh, Steve was great. Steve was, yeah, unfortunately, Steve's passed mm. on. I wish we had him around, but uh, he was great. Yeah, yeah he good friend. Like he came good, with good like a real music, musical integrity. He, it was about the music yes. and nothing else with him. Absolutely. That was Steve, yeah, yeah. He was great, yeah. Can I ask you some questions about those BBC radio sessions? Sure, I'll do my best to. <laughs> I've got remember. one for you here. October 1968, with wow. Boots Slade and Malcolm Tomlinson. I think Malcolm Tomlinson's the drummer. And Boots Slade is the bassist, I believe, on the Stuart Henry show. Do you remember working with those guys? You know, I don't. I remember the names. Okay. But that's about it. I don't remember. It was at the Aeolian Hall. That was the BBC studio. Yes, that's BBC. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's BBC. Yeah. Was were any of them in front of an audience at that time? In that in that sort. Oh of yeah, those BBC shows were live live audiences. So Absolutely. How many? Well, you mean how many people? Yeah. Maybe a uh, hundred or so people, something oh, really? like that. You don't hear them. Yeah. They're not. They 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 whisper quiet, aren't they? In the background, they don't make any sound. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, it may be so. Um, but, you know, I remember there used to be quite a bunch of people there, Aeolian Hall, and then there were some other shows that we did, BBC shows, that were, would be in other parts of the country. Oh, really? Yeah. I've, mm -hmm. I know of some that you did with uh, Roger and Dave at Camden Theatre. That's another one that you're down to have done. Okay. And yeah. obviously you did... The BBC show where I've watched it, you know, the, the sounds on sounds on Sundays, what it's called, or Saturday, where you did oh, yeah. the Elton John album um, with Paul Buckmaster conducting. Oh, okay, show. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think you're there, but you never feed, you're never on screen. You are there, aren't you? Yeah, I'm just tucked away in the background, you know, with the string players or something somewhere. And of course, yeah. I, I sent you that video fairly recently of you um, on the Disco 2 show much earlier, I think. Uh, oh, so, yeah. Um, where you were playing with Lou Christie, who was having a right old time of it, trying to get the vocals of that oh. song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you do a few more of those? You, you, you mentioned to me that you recalled a few more you were basically like the house band almost for that show. Yeah, for a while. Yeah, we did um, stuff with Billy Preston. Was that with Elton? No. That was Hookfoot. That was Hookfoot, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you were involved with all sorts of recordings at the time, weren't you? You were quite busy, as well as doing actual Hookfoot. I was a busy session guy, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. You, you, What was what you intended to do with Hookfoot, it seems like you, as time went on, it got jazzier, would you say? Well, because that's my roots as a musician, that's mm. jazz, jazz and blues is my roots. And so 
um, I just wanted to, and Roger too, we just wanted to get get in touch with that music, interpret that music as best we could, you know. We weren't really interested in being a quote-unquote pop group. Mm. And of course now, this time in the, you know, when the 70s rolled along, the glitter scene came in. That was not for me. That was not for us. No. And when Elton did get you back in the band, it was much more musicianly, wasn't it? It wasn't yeah. so... Like, he did pretty much tone things down, I think. Yeah. Right. You, you had some basic ground rules as well, like Crocodile Rock was a basic rule. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. It's not that yeah. bad a song. It's like a kid's song. What have you got against, what you, what have you got against I children? Know. I know. But uh, to play that every night. Oh, you know, God. No, 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 no. No, I've always been more of a serious musician. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. Another project that happened but didn't quite happen was the Bread and Beer Band. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's when we were starving. <laughs> That was, a, that was a lean time for everybody and so a friend of ours, Tony King, uh, put the project together and um, it was basically so we could earn some earn some money and eat. That's what that was about. Where did you record that? EMI Studios. So Abbey Road? Yeah, Abbey Road, yeah. Mm -hmm. Not in the big room, in the small room? Number two studio. Mm -hmm. Okay. There was a session that has turned, a couple of tracks have turned up. One was Rock and Roll Madonna, and another one was an early version, a really chugging, simplistic version of Ballad of a Well-Known Gun, which was a session helmed by Steve Brown, probably, I would say, September, October 69, that would be my guess, 
at Olympic. And famously, this is the one where... See, there are certain things I don't believe. This is the one where Elton got stoned for the first time. For the first time. with, And, and they rolled a joint, they, I don't know who, using a toilet roll. Like the inside of a... T- I just, just... Why wouldn't you have papers? None of that makes sense. Does any of that come back to you at all? Uh, I remember doing, the, you know, the, the, remember the we session. did those questions at Olympic with Steve. Yeah, absolutely. So were there several days, do you think, you went in there? I think we were in there for like two or three days. And some of the, some of the tracks, I think, are instrumental. So it sounded like you were making a real crack at recording something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he'd come up with a new batch of songs, you know. Take me to the pilot. I know we did a version of that there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the stuff about the joint thing, I I just don't re- I don't remember it that. Sounds like nonsense to me. Yeah. those discount hallmark avenue sessions that elton did i didn't yeah i didn't do those because no, you that were too was busy doing proper sessions weren't you yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> you've yeah. said that in 68 you and elton did do some sessions together though do you do you recall any of those things just trying to think one of these there was you know we did an album um for long john baldry oh yes you did yeah that was 71, I think. Was that 71? Yeah. That was okay. You recorded a single, Mr. Boyd, with Roger, Hodge, Roger Hodgson from I was going to mention that, yeah. I couldn't remember the name of it, but yeah, Roger, who, used, who went on to be the uh, leader of Supertramp. Yes. Um, yeah. Do you know who was on bass for that? You don't remember, do you? I think it, it was Nigel D-Mo. on drums. I think it was D was on the bass. That's what I figured it would be. Did you do any more than those two songs that came out on that single? Gosh, good question, and I honestly cannot remember. Fair enough.
another absolutely hilarious quote is that you spent 16 hours playing the chord C7 for Nielsen for Coconut. Yeah. That yeah. sounds mind-numbing. It sounds atrocious. It was. was it as it bad was. as it sounds? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That was not a fun session at all. No. Yeah. Uh, what Out of the album sessions for Elton, there'll be Elton John with Gus, um, the, organ, the heavily organised ones, Tumbleweed yeah. with Gus, and uh, Madman. Which did you enjoy out of those three the most? Which do you have the fondest memories of working on? Um, most probably Tumbleweed. There's an interview that I heard with Elton recently from about March 1970, where he's saying, oh, there's a new album coming out. It's got freaky strings on it, um, which would be the Elton John album. And then we've already oh. recorded half of a double album of folk and band songs. And, uh, and so there was a... Do, do you remember being party to those discussions that there was going to be a double tumbleweed back before it was completed? You ever heard that? Maybe it's just Elton no. getting excited. I've never heard that, yeah. I'd love to hear a Double Tumbleweed, my favourite album oh. of all time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the way, I always go on about this, but the introduction to Ballad of a Well-Known Gun, for a start, it seems to skip a beat. Does it skip a beat? No, it doesn't skip a beat. Um, I think what throws people off is just the the great, drum intro when Roger comes in on the drums and then the piano comes in. Yeah. And that was done in one take. Because there's a, there's a later session version of it and it's not quite the same. So that was the first attempt at recording it on yeah, that day. Yeah, that was it, yeah. The interplay between you and Elton is just completely unreal. It really is unreal what happens in that intro, in that 12 seconds or whatever yeah. it is. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Well, it's, uh, I can tell you the way it happened, and, and again, it's down to this chemistry thing. <clears throat> in uh, we, we did it in Trident Studios, and the, the, the way Trident is laid out is that the actual studio, the recording room where the musicians are, is downstairs, in, like in the basement. Mm. The control room is up a flight of stairs. So we had uh, set up. And we'd started to run through the tune so that the engineer, Gus, and the engineer, Robin Cable, could, uh, you know, get their, get their balance and everything. Then we go back up, and they record a little bit of it, you know. We go back up into the control room to listen to the playback to see what, you know, make sure everything's sounding the way we want it. <clears throat> Everybody's happy, fine, great. Okay, let's go now. Let's go do a take. Mm -hmm. As we're walking down the stairs, Gus Dudgeon shouts out to me, Oh, Caleb, we need a guitar intro for it. Okay. Can you come up with something? Okay, sure. I walk, I mean, you know, don't break a step. I'm walking into the studio, put the guitar on, the red light goes on, and I just hit that intro. And that's what you got. Uh, <laughs> that's unbelievable. I mean, it's, that's how tight we were. It's so iconic. It's it's basically it, it exists in my brain as a solid thing. Like if you were to break my brain down, there would be a small bit of it that was 
the introduction to Ballad of a Well-Known Gun, you'd say, oh, look, there's that bit, there's that bit. It's just there. It's never going anywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Trident was quite a funky studio to be in, wasn't it? It was quite... Trident was Really hip. Wonderful. Yeah. Are you speaking from a uh, sound engineer producing perspective or from just an atmosphere perspective? Uh, actually, all of it. All of it. It was great, you know, technically, sonically, beautiful play. I mean, it was great. And then uh, as a, a place to play in, you know, from the performance side of things, it was a beautiful atmosphere. Mm. It was an excellent studio, great studio. Here's something then that was recorded at Trident with Caleb on guitar, Roger Pope on drums, Dave Glover on bass, Ray Cooper on percussion, and of course, Rick Wakeman on the famous Trident piano. This definitely has that trident vibe it's from the john congos album produced by gus also 1971 this is come on down jesus in a hundred years yeah more than we'll do everybody's putting together a campaign, aren't you, to try to raise some funds? Yes, for the movie, yeah. We need 55 grand to pay Getty Images for some vintage footage uh, that we want to include in my movie. And the movie is just being submitted to um, the Sundance Movie uh, Film Festival. So you've got the footage in there, you just need to get the clearances now. Exactly, yeah. What sort of thing is it? Can you tell me? What era is it, at least? Well, some of it is uh, footage of my father doing stuff back in the 50s. Okay. And then some of it is um, Hookfoot from um, Disco 2 and what have you. Okay. All right. So you know all about Disco 2 in that case. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Caleb, it's been an absolute privilege to talk to you and good luck collecting the money that you need to get that film out there because it would be a real addition to us in the Elton John community. And it would just oh, be yeah. one what? of the worst tragedies ever if, if we don't get to see it because yeah. there's so many things. How many things are there that us in the Elton John community, we know they exist, like the demos that you recorded, the recordings rather, that you recorded with Elton back in the day because they're not mm-hmm. demos. Um, 
all of that stuff has not been formally released and it's I think we're horribly underserved. Here is something that we actually could have if we just put our hands in the po- in our pockets. So it's down to us yeah. to make it happen. I appreciate that. Yeah, and I promise you won't be disappointed when you see the movie because it's it's the only it's the only first-hand account out there uh, from somebody who was there at the time of how his whole career got started in the yeah. first place. Yes, you're the man that let him through the audition. I love that. I love that perspective. I'd never really thought of it like that, but there we go. No, no. <laughs> it's all in there. career in your it's hands. <laughs> Caleb, you're very kind. Thank you for your time. And maybe we'll speak again another time, but perhaps about 75, 76. Okay. Thank you, Neil. So that's that. Wow. What a treat. Please. Go now and sign up at Caleb's GoFundMe. There's all sorts of perks to be had, such as signed photo of the man. Surely better than spending $800 on a ticket to watch Elton doing Crocodile Rock from way up in the gods. Please, if you've enjoyed the podcast, you can write a review on iTunes. You can send me emails with correspondence with ideas to eltonpodcast at gmail.com. There's a Facebook group as well if you care to look in and see what I'm talking about on there. I promised another track from the Steve Ellis album, and this is one that Caleb clearly brought along with him. Take me to the pilot.